This is episode nine of the Uncover Dish Christian Leadership Podcast. The podcast that uncovers stories, equips leaders, and changes the world. And we are your hosts, Caitlin Deal and James Lee. On Friday, January 27th, 2017, President Donald J. Trump signed an executive order that indefinitely barred Syrian refugees from entering the United States, suspended all refugee admissions for 120 days, and blocked citizens of seven Muslim-majority countries, refugees or otherwise, from entering the United States for 90 days. So since then, more than 800 places of worship nationwide, including more than six United Methodist congregations, vowed to shelter and protect immigrants in danger of separation from their families or being returned to countries they fled. One of these churches is Park United Methodist Church in Bloomfield, New Jersey. The senior pastor of Park UMC, Reverend Joel Hubbard, along with leaders of other worshiping bodies in his community, took a vocal stand on national news stating, quote, We are disappointed in the president's recent executive order of immigration, and we remain committed to providing care and refuge and sanctuary to refugees to this country. We've invited Pastor Joel on the podcast today to talk about the journey Park UMC has taken to get to this point. Uh, Joel, it's great to have you on the show today. It's good to be here, James. Thank you very Thank much, Caitlin. Thank you Caitlin. for being here. So, you know, how did your church get involved with refugees and immigration from the very beginning? About a little more than a year ago, one of our members, Bob Bertrand, uh, became exposed to refugee resettlement through his workplace. The company that he helps run began to assist and provide services for refugee families that were coming over through Church World Service, which is one of the nine agencies nationwide that is under contract with the State Department to place refugee families around the country. Well, Bob immediately was telling me about the the experience and... So we began having conversation. We began to include other persons in the in congregation in that conversation. And it really didn't take very long for the leadership of the church to say, we need to know more. So an invitation was extended to the then director of the New Jersey uh, efforts for church world service, uh, Mahmoud Mahmoud, to, we invited him to come on a Sunday and to share with us the ministry, the mission, the outreach, what was happening, the details, how do you go about it, what does it take, how is a refugee family vetted, all of those specifics. And one of the things that we recognized, uh, the congregation, the leadership recognized, was that this is something that obviously would not just affect us, but would affect the community around us and the other faith communities. So I immediately reached out to the faith leaders in Bloomfield and other congregations, as well as civic leaders and and, uh, township committee chair people, to let them know that we were beginning this initiative and to specifically invite them uh, to listen and to share and to worship with us. Uh, That particular Sunday was incredible be, and, and quite historic, because it was the first time, but not subsequently the last time, that all of the people of the book were under one roof to worship in Bloomfield. So each of those bodies said, yes, this, this is not just something we want to do. This is something we need to do. 
We need to do it for those who are suffering, and we need to do it for ourselves in this community. It took us till September. It took us a while, you know, to get organized and get moving and and find our way. Uh, And so we agreed to sponsor a family of four from Ethiopia who had been in a refugee camp in Kenya for the last two years. This particular family was actually going to be settled in Jersey City. So we we knew that just because of the, the distance that we wouldn't be able to do a lot of personal social support connecting them within the, we didn't have our contacts in Jersey City. But we knew that we could provide linens, that we could stock a refrigerator, that we could stock a pantry, that we could get bedding and furniture and make sure that when they walked through the doors, that they would feel home. What would be like the first like one or two steps that, you know, somebody who wants to do this should take? I, th- there are a number of excellent first steps, and, and conversation, I think, and education are intensely key. So one of the things that I would suggest would be to invite someone who is doing this. Mm. Invite a representative from the Greater Bloomfield Interfaith Partners. Uh, give me a call. <laughs> we'll, 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 we will be glad to, to, to come and offer whatever it is that from our own experience. Yeah, we'll put Pastor Joel's email in the show notes. <laughs> there you go. Not a problem. And there are many there, there are many other congregations around that are doing that. So yes, inviting someone who's already participating. I know that Church World Service is glad to send out a representative to speak with groups. Perfect. Thank you. You're welcome. So why is it important for a Christian or the church to be involved with immigration and refugee resettlement? I don't know that I'm qualified to answer why the church should or why Christians should. For me, it comes down to the fact that I feel the call of Jesus Christ to be involved where people are most at risk, where there's abuse, where there is betrayal, where there's abandonment, where people are at the margins. My understanding of Christianity is that that's where Jesus lived. Again, I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say what somebody else should do or could do, but, but that's at the heart of it for me. And that's at the heart of it, I believe, that's the, the testimony that I hear from others at Park Church and even in the interfaith partnership. We have two particular scriptures that undergird and provide some theological and biblical foundation. The one is... Uh, Jesus is, is sharing about the kingdom. In the last week of his life, he's in the temple court. He's teaching about the kingdom. And he says, you know, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all his angels with him, Matthew 25, I'm sure many of the listeners and y'all remember it. Those who the Lord then welcomes into the fulfillment of the kingdom, they ask the question, why me? They don't get you know, there's, there's a little bit of surprise here in the story. Why me? Well, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something. To, when I was a stranger, you welcomed me. When I was sick, when I was in prison, you visited me. You cared for me when I was vulnerable, when I was at risk. When, Lord, when you did for the least, it was me. There's an identification, liberation theologists, you know, are great with the, the, the identification of, of, of God and Jesus, particularly with the poor and the oppressed. And, 
you know, this is absolutely one of those seminal experiences and expressions of Jesus for that. That's one of our foundational pieces. And, and in Hebrew scripture, um, we utilize the words particularly from the prophet Micah. Uh, what does the Lord require of you, O mortals? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. So for me, why is this important? Because I recognize refugees are people who have been pushed to the very margin. These are not people who have the ability any longer to speak, to, to change the situation. They're not persons of, in a position of power and authority. They have been subjected to all manner of physical, financial, spiritual, and emotional abuse. So if my call in life is to do justice, to love mercy and compassion, to walk humbly with God, then it's the mandate of God. So you mentioned scripture, and yeah. um, it's interesting um, because there are many fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who would also use scripture to argue the opposite. So one thing that some Christians are worried about is if you are working towards refugee resettlement, you are almost going against a an executive order from the President of the United States. Some refer to Romans th- 13, which I'll just read it real, real quickly. It says, uh, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So how do you reconcile uh, this passage with what you and Park Church said about President Donald Trump and what you are doing now? Well, first off, sticking right with the scriptures, I want to be clear that we, we do not contend against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers. I don't know Mr. Trump personally. Uh, I'm only familiar with the actions that he takes as POTUS. And in that respect, that's where I I personally would take issue. I, I just wanted to be clear that we're not seeking to demean anybody personally. Um, the One of the great things about scripture is that the Word of God comes to us fr- through a, a human vehicle, right? And, and in this case, uh, scholars recognize that it's the Apostle Paul. Interestingly enough, Paul lives in context. I say that to remind us all that we're not Paulians or Christians. And I honor and respect and I believe in the truth of Scripture. But Paul didn't die for my sins. Jesus did. And there are many times in these wondrous and powerful writings where Paul does get some things askew. I, I think of Paul in a very same way as I think of John Wesley. And there's great parallels in their lives. Wesley got some stuff wrong, right? Wesley was a lousy husband. And Wesley was another one who absolutely supported the state. One of the great trials for early Methodism was the relationship between Wesley and the crowd. And in looking at, at this passage from Romans, 
I find that it raises more questions than it provides me with answers. Mm. I mean, we could go, we could throw scripture proof text back and forth, but our, our, our struggle is exacerbated when we remember that the, the, the words that you first read have also been used to support the enslavement of Africans in the United States. These, these words were used to undercut resistance to the draconian and despotic uh, actions in Nazi Germany. These were, were words that were utilized from our pulpits in the 1950s when the fear-mongering of McCarthyism was rampant. It's not a simple this or that. It requires our investment and requires us to be in the present and in the dialogue to understand and interpret. Wow, thank you, Pastor Joel, for just sharing the, that theological aspect. I think a lot of our a lot of our audience is actually pastors and church leaders, um, so I think they would really appreciate that insight. Also, because our listeners are mostly pastors and church leaders, a lot of them probably agree with you in a lot of things of what you said and also what you are what you and Park Church are doing. But they would also say something to the effect of, "Sure, Pastor Joel, um, your church is great. Your church." Uh, is open to these new ideas. Your church is progressive, but I'm appointed to a conservative church or a politically divided church or a mixed church. Something like this would never fly in my congregation. Uh, you know, they find the issue to be perhaps too political and worry that talking about it would divide their congregations. This is a fear that a lot of uh, clergy I've spoken with have expressed. So what would you say to pastors and church leaders of these churches? Well, I, I appreciate that very much. And, and I agree that these are conversations that are fraught with peril. Mm. These are not easy things to talk about. Right. I, I want to affirm in my colleagues that, yes, these are difficult things to be engaged in. Um, however, I, I want to I remind myself uh, I actually do not serve a progressive church. Uh, the, if I know that that people often say that of Park, and it really makes me laugh because I can tell you right now, our folks from West Africa, not so much. Okay. Um, yeah, when you start having conversations about refugee resettlement, did any of your church members uh, reject that, or were they were they upset about that? One of the one of the things that we have worked very hard to create is an atmosphere for discussion. Uh, and again, as I said earlier, we're not looking to create cookie-cutter Christians that speak the exact same words and believe identical to one another. Our understanding of diversity is that it is an intention of God that we have been made to have a unique perspective, each and every one. And that when we come together, we have a fuller experience, expression, and understanding of the kingdom. So um, certainly there are differences of opinion on how to approach all issues, including refugee resettlement. There are certainly persons who are fervently um, looking for us that we, if we could have 20, we could sponsor, co-sponsor 20 families today to do it. And there are others that are deeply concerned for this, their own physical safety and the safety of their family. Right, right. 
We want to honor all of those feelings. But try to find a way that we can actually move forward and neither discount nor diminish human experience. And I think that's the struggle that most clergy have, right? Oh, yeah. Where to find that balance. Absolutely. Because it feels, especially in today's day and age, whatever you do, whatever you suggest, you're going to offend somebody in the in the pews. Do you think there'll ever be a balance? Do you ever think there'll ever be that equal balance? Or it's always going to teeter back and forth, depending on the <laughs> subject we're talking about from week to week. <laughs> <laughs> I think in a healthy environment, I don't want to use the word balance. I think the for me, the word would be tension. There needs to be a tension. There needs to be a push and a pull that provides us with a, a holistic experience. Uh, I've, been, I've been serving in pastoral ministry for 34 years. For the last 30 years here in New Jersey, uh, my first congregation was in the middle of the Pine Barrens in Indian Mills. And I've been on what was formerly the Southwest District of the Southern Conference uh, in Swedesboro. And many, if not most, would be considered conservative congregations. But regardless of what label might be applied, I don't care whether it's evangelical or ecumenical or moderate or conservative or liberal or progressive, one of the things that I have found entirely in all of those places and with amongst all of those wonderful faithful Christians is that God's people expected leadership from their pastors. Not management, not not janitorial good, services. Not janitorial <laughs> services. Excellent, James. Yes. But leadership. And, and leadership, biblically, is a very dangerous thing. Hmm. Leadership, biblically. There's, there's, not a, there's not a biblical leader that I can think of where leaders do not come under fire. Spiritual leaders. Okay? One of the things that I, I love... As I've tried to get to know Moses more and more, for me, the biblical Moses is so much more like Woody Allen. He kind of whines at God. That's right. right? Me? You know what? He has a stutter, right? He has a stutter. Okay. He needs his brother to say all the things for him. He's a convicted murderer, Right. But through the presence and power of God, he moves beyond those things, right? Because God sees beyond what we see. And somewhere he became committed. But no matter what happens, no matter how many successes, how, how much, I mean, Moses is the one that leads the people out of slavery, across the water, right? Towards the promised land. And yet, all the time, the people are coming to him and saying, we want to go back. Where have you led us? I can't believe you've taken us into the desert. What? There's no food. There's no water. Right? At one point, they want to stone the guy. Right? Leadership is costly. The, one of the things that I love about Hebrew Scripture is it doesn't cover up Moses' response or Elijah's response. You know, it hurts them. It's painful to them. 
They, they cry out to God. You know, really? Okay, I, I've given all of this, and this is what I get back? Mm. Okay. So I want to say that, that as a faith leader, there are times when it will not be popular. Christian discipleship is not about prosperity. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus talks about his own life with Peter and the disciples and says, here's what's going to happen. Okay, it's going good right now. We're feeding 5,000 with some loaves and fishes, and I'm walking on water, and people are being thrilled with these teachings and, and, and the dead are being raised and lepers are being cleansed and people are being healed, but there's going to come a time when I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be killed and you're going to betray me. So there's, I, th- I believe, particularly in times like this, that it's, it's critical for us to understand that there is a cost to discipleship. And even the most profound and universal recognitions of justice, justice work requires sacrifice. It doesn't just happen by itself or without pain and struggle. Now, I said earlier, we don't contend against flesh and blood. We don't, it's not about attacking someone else. Um, it is about standing up for the principles for which, which are at the very foundation of our faith. All right. Thank you. You want to do the next questions? Um, yeah. So I know you already touched on a little bit about um, what church leaders can do right now. You know, for people who are fearful to kind of set foot out of their houses and go to church, you know, how do we reach out to these people and say it's okay? Our church is a sanctuary. It's a safe place for you to go. Yeah. Clarifying question. Now, so are you referring, though, to... Um, for example, illegal immigrants coming out of their house or just people in general? Well, you know, have you heard, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, how there's some church people in the church who are illegal immigrants who Uh, aren't coming to the churches because they're fearful of getting deported. Yeah, there's one church, where is it? Um, There's one church that reported they had a a second Spanish-speaking service, Mm -hmm. and the Sunday after the executive order, no one was there. Yeah. What can we do for these people who are fearful right now? Well, one of the things I think is to speak up, is to be very clear who we are, whose we are, and how we understand our life together. So for those congregations that do wish to be places and people of sanctuary and refuge, to, to, to make certain that they are unambiguous about that statement. Oh, gosh, I love that passage out of James, right? What good is it to say to your brother or sister who's, who's oppressed or hungry or thirsty, I'll pray for you, but you don't care for their bodily needs? Mm-hmm. What good is it to say to a homeless person in your community, come to church, but to ignore the fact that they do not have adequate food, shelter, or clothing? Faith without works, dead. So I would say that, that we need to establish credibility by what we do not just by what we say. Yeah, you know, I see all of this coming to the forefront in the media, and I see a lot of Christians and non-Christians kind of 
their eyes are open to this now. They open to see immigrants, immigration issues and refugee issues. And I always think that God is in control. So do you think this is his bigger picture? Like this is his doing in a way to let the people know that there's so, you know, open your eyes, America. Like open your eyes, people. Like there's, this is going on. Do you see God having a bigger plan for all of this? Absolutely. One of the things that I do not believe that God ever intends for people to suffer. I think that's evidently clear uh, when we look at Scripture. And I, it's often quoted that um, God doesn't send you anything that you cannot cope with, that you, you, that you can't deal with. Yeah. It, it, it's totally a misquote. Because what the passage really says is nothing that suffering is common to everyone and nothing comes into your life that God will not also send you the ability to work through it. Okay, now that's so consistent with Psalm 23, right? Yea, though I walk around the shadow of death, over the valley of the shadow under the valley of the shadow no through the valley of the shadow of death and i will fear no evil because you are with me you are by my side mm. one of the things that is absolutely true is life is hard and it is painful and this is one of those experiences for us to say this is go- this is going to be a painful time it's not so much why did it happen? But I believe our, our work as a Christian community, as a faith community, is to say, how can we turn this suffering to good? How can this be a vehicle for the redemption? How can we take, this is a cross moment, okay? People literally are being crucified because of their ethnicity, because of their poverty, because of their sexual identity. How do we participate with God to make this a resurrection moment? For me, that is where I want my personal self to be, and I want to help lead the congregation that I am to serve, is to work for finding God's redemption out of this crucifixion. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Joel, once again for coming on the show. We do have one last question. We do ask all our guests. Um, do you want me to do it this time, or do you want to? I think you need to take a stab at that. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think I, I haven't done it in a while. So <clears throat> let's try it. Okay, let's oh, do is, this. Is, is, is this like where the the heinous media traps <laughs> the the innocent authority figure? <laughs> This is such a we've we've blown this question up way too much. It's it's a simple question. So we are the Uncovered Dish Christian Leadership Podcast because we we Methodists love food. We yes. love covered dish, right? Beautiful. Awesome. So uh, one question we ask all our guests um, is: if you had to choose one dish, one meal, one food to eat for the rest of your life—breakfast, lunch, and dinner—no alternatives. What would it be? Oh, dude. <laughs> The hard question. When we have a covered dish at Park, right? We got folks from twenty countries, right? Right. So, so that's a more controversial question (laughs) than refugee resettlement. (laughs) You kidding me? Well, you know, if I if I say black rice, the Haitian the Haitian community is like, yeah, 
Yeah, he went black rice. If I go chicken and and rice and beans, the Latino community, like, yeah, he went. Right, um, <laughs> so dude, we are, we are man, setting you I'm up just, back. <laughs> I'm so. So what's your favorite food of all time? Could be a childhood favorite or... Oh, Lord. Um, all right. So if the, the one thing, though, that I could not do without would be a garbage pizza. Garbage pizza? I've never heard of that. What is that? Oh, man. <laughs> it would be... You should have brought it <laughs> <laughs> oh, you didn't give me that option. Picked up my right now. Okay. Oh, Onions, peppers, <laughs> mushrooms, um, bacon, sausage, meatballs, pepperoni, black olives, green olives. So like an everything veggie. Oh, fried eggplant. Uh, it's, it's entirely Western, decadent, <laughs> and sinful. <laughs> Because, I mean, tr- truly, in any other country in the world, right, I would probably be jailed just for making the pizza. I, I guess this last question was the most controversial mm-hmm. question. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you once again, Pastor uh, Joel Hubbard, for coming on the show. Again, uh, Pastor Joel is the senior pastor at Park United Methodist Church in Bloomfield, New Jersey. They have a vibrant multicultural service on Sunday uh, at 1045 a.m. And you can find more information at parkumcbloomfield.org. Uh, also, if you wanted to read about what the bishops of the Northeastern uh, Jurisdiction had to say about this issue, you can go online on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gnjumc, and we have it posted right there. The Northeastern Jurisdiction College of uh, Bishops uh, released a statement on immigration uh, just this uh, month. Uh, actually, uh, Pastor Joel, if you don't mind, we would like to close our podcast today uh, with a word of prayer, the prayer that the bishops wrote on uh, for their February 2017 statement on immigration. Absolutely. Let us pray. Creator God, before life began, you reached deep into the soil around the world to gather rich red clay, fertile black soil, white sand, tan and brown earth, and you created us people of every hue, every culture, and every nation. And you called us good. Lord, we praise you for making us different. Yet through all of us, you pulsed the same rich blood and breathed into us the same breath, your spirit. Redeemer God, forgive us when we allow culture, color, and national boundary to become the enemy of hospitality and dignity. Forgive us for stigmatizing the name immigrant. In the midst of life's complexities, let us never give up or give in to quick fixes, but to be the innovators, the creators following your example. Forgive us for forgetting that we are and we have a rich lineage of immigrants. Sustainer God, protector of all, 
Strengthen us, empower us for the journey ahead. Give wisdom and boundless love to the leaders of our nation, the leaders of our communities, schools, governments, and congregations. Give us the courage, Lord. Grant to us the humility to lead people towards security, justice, righteousness, safe borders, and safe passage. Bless those born within our borders, those who crossed our borders to find a new home. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is in the name of the Christ that we live, that we pray, that we work, and that we commit to welcoming the stranger loving our enemies, and praying for those who persecute us. Amen. Thank you again for tuning in today's podcast. If there are any topics you'd like us to uncover or any comments for us, you can email them to podcast at gnjumc.org. We will be posting a new podcast every other Wednesday. So if you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to give us a five-star rating on iTunes and subscribe to be up to date on the latest episodes. We'll talk to you soon. I wish I didn't suck at teaching confirmation class. I want to take my youth on a mission trip, but I have no idea where to start. Everyone seems to have a youth ministry. How do I start one? Working with youth in our churches is tough. That's why we're hosting our first ever Ignite Youth Leaders Day, a resourcing and training event for pastors, leaders, and volunteers on Saturday, February 11th. There will be workshops by Preston Santuolo, Dr. Kenda Creasy-Dean, Kermit Moss, and other GNJ local church leaders on topics such as hip-hop ministry, starting a youth ministry from scratch, leading student mission trips, and how not to suck at confirmation. Register today for only $15 at ignitenj.org. Hope to see you there.